Welcome to the Evolvepreneur podcast channel, which is sponsored by Evolvepreneur.biz, a new online community-based platform designed to help develop your skills and knowledge to be massively successful in this new digital age. Your host today is John North, who is a three-time number one international best-selling author and strategic marketer. John's passion is to help business owners to master the online marketing world. Welcome to Volpreneurs to our latest podcast. My very special guest today is Mara Norfolk, who's the founder of Athena Group Companies, a business conglomerate operating in more than 40 countries. He bootstrapped his first business at the age of 22 with $300 in his bank account, selling blenders door to door, which led to creating Fruity Australia. He made his first million in year one and eight figures by year two. Mario has been scaled to over 30 countries and launched many other companies, including consulting business, bootstrapped to seven figures in less than six months. Mario has been through extremely difficult black swan events that would break down any entrepreneurs and bankrupt the business. He's now bootstrapping seven-figure seven business and documenting the entire process from beginning to end to allow entrepreneurs full access to all marketing, logistics, product, operational and financial decisions, including both failures and successes. Welcome, Murray, to the show. I'm really excited to talk to you today. John, thanks for your time. Wow, that was a, that was a big one. <laughs> I don't know where to start. So um, you, we were talking earlier, you were actually you were born in Australia? Were you originally born in Australia? No, I wasn't. I migrated there from Lebanon. I migrated as a kid. I was very young, under 10. Right. And, uh, but I've lived most of my life in Aubrey with Dorongo in Australia, then Melbourne. Yep. And then about six years ago, I left Australia and I've been traveling for six years, Europe, US, and, and right. uh, mid, okay. mainly Dubai. We certainly picked up the accent, so it's okay. <laughs> I do. No, I get all different accents. I've got the accent, again, the Australian accent, because I spent a few months there recently. I haven't yep. been there for six years. I went there for three months. It came back. But before that, I had no Australian accent left. It all disappeared. <laughs> it's funny how you mirror other people, right? <laughs> mm, it is. It is. You sort of blend in. But the funny thing is, I think, whenever you, wherever you go in the world, if you, there's an Australian will pop up. Like, it's quite amazing. Like, we're, we're travellers. Australia, New Zealand, you find it anywhere in the world, you, you pop one and pop up out of nowhere. It may, it, it, at least one. Uh, it yeah. depends where you go. Like Dubai, I found, there's a lot of Australians in Dubai. Mm. Probably you know, pass over from going on to the UK and stuff. So, all right. So, where do we start here? Um, so, what do you, we originally spoke about what you're doing now. Um, and you said you had three major companies. But let's just go back to the beginning a little bit first. And because you, you did talk, talk to me a little bit about your obviously first business and, and what happened there. And we talked a little bit about um, the fact you had some some accounting issues and stuff like that. So tell me a little bit about your first business, how you got started. So you're only 22, 300 bucks in the bank. So you're working for someone else at the time, were you? No, so I, I was at university doing banking and finance. And then I saw a video of a young boy, his name was Farah Gray, I remember the name. Right. And I, I was 22, 21, I think when I saw that video, 21, 22. And I said, yeah, I'm too young. I'm studying like crazy, learn, obsessed in learning. So doing a, a degree at Monash University, a diploma somewhere else, a lot of self-education, reading a lot. And I thought I'd make my money in my 30s. I'm still way too young. And I, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship meant. And then I saw that kid make a million dollars by the age of 13 or 14, his first million. And I realized that, no, I'm not, it's not I'm too young. I'm actually probably too old to make my millions. So I immediately left university and went out door knocking because that was the first job I got. And it wasn't really employment. It was just a commission basis. Yep. And that got me outside my comfort zone. Immediately threw me in a perfect position to get necessary skills to go out on my own and, and build my business and, and face the, the tough world of business. 
Right. And so um, selling flute, uh, obviously blenders door to door is not, <laughs> it must be tough. That's probably like selling encyclopedias virtually, you know, right? I reckon it was certainly teaching. It is. So I started, I started with water filters before blenders. I started selling water. You know those uh, office, they probably have them everywhere in Australia. Yeah. They're in the office, the water cooler in the US everywhere. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was selling on a rental at $10 a week, yeah. um, which adds up. And yeah. I would, we offer them a free trial. I get paid for every trial. And then we offer them, if they buy the product, I close the deal afterwards. I get a much bigger commission. And I got, um, I actually made a fair bit of money in about three, two, three thousand Australian dollars a week, which is not bad, up to four thousand on good weeks. Um, so I did well with, it, with this as well. And I managed to cash up a bit. And then I started testing different things. And that's the thing in entrepreneurship. You test everything until something works. And then what worked um, out of everything I was testing while still doing water filters and I built my team that was commission only was blenders. Mm -hmm. uh, juice bars and cafes were looking for commercial blenders at a good price. And um, that worked well. And then I found out about eBay. I, never, I didn't know anything about eBay. And I put the product on there. I got my first sale. I doubled down. And I started selling blenders on eBay. And then expanded the business from there. Initially, it was drop shipping. And then I got a bit of stock in my garage. And then I bought something from Alibaba. I just learned everything myself, developed a web. The website was on a platform called GoCart. Okay. I've never met anyone that knows GoCart. <laughs> it was horrendous. So I, I just did every, I didn't even have a checkout option back then. I had to contact us if they wanted to buy the product. They had to contact us first. So um, it was just finding what works and then doubling down on it. And that's what I still do today. With so it's an business. interesting thing you started with um, charging so much a week. I mean, one of the things that I'm sort of being my bonnet about businesses is that very few businesses think about reoccurring income. So what they'll do is they'll go out and sell a single item and then try and sell another one. But if you actually can sell that item over and over again every week, it creates a foundation of cash flow. That's, yeah. Look, lifetime value is everything in business because for, I, I'm not going to take credit. I didn't do that back then. So you misunderstood because back then I sold a water filter that was not my ID. The water yep. filters were in other companies I get commissioned. And with the blenders, it's a one-off purchase. But last, in the last 12 months, all my focus is on that recurring revenue, that lifetime value. It costs so much money to acquire a customer. Yep. And it's getting more and more expensive. And I'll ask you, just today, just today, my general manager in Australia, for Fruity, the company we were talking about, my first mm -hmm. business, saying, Mario, you know, I, I'm doing customer service recently because we have a shortage of staff, two of them are sick. And um, I'm starting to see like, some customers take a lot of our time, yeah. 45 minutes well, uh, to speak yeah. to them. And I'm just thinking, I love customer service. He, he, he adores people. He's a great person. I was like, Mario, is it good for the business? I'm like, think about it. Let's say you pay a customer service person $20 an hour or $30 an hour. Let's say it's 20. Um, and they spend 45 minutes for every call and then 15 minutes to recover. That's 20 minutes for a call to yep. close a sale. Yep. The cost to acquire one of our customers is about $100, $200 to acquire a customer, brand new, not recurring, to acquire them. Because we sell them, our blenders cost three, $400 in our juices. They're very high-end right. quality products. Um, so that's to acquire a customer. John, so it, it just shows the value of recurring revenue and maintaining that customer, doing everything you can to maintain that customer. Because uh, not only is the customer, the attention of people is so expensive to acquire. Yep. Once you have their attention, just nurture the hell out of it. Mm. And that's interesting that, that you know, obviously a lot of businesses, we, and I speak to a lot of businesses every day, and the first thing I ask them is how much to acquire a customer, and very few people know that. Um, it, it's, they, don't, they don't think about it. <laughs> Ultimately. It is. It is. And look, 
a business's success is determined when you compare yourself to your competitors. The business that will succeed is the one that is able to afford the most per acquisition because yeah. they'll overpay, overspend mm. and dominate you in Google. They'll dominate you on Facebook. And how can they do that? By improving two things. Conversion rate with better customer service, better experience on the website and lifetime value. Yeah. And so conversion rate also and the cost, reducing their cost as well. So uh, that kind of goes into the margin, the conversion rate, the margin per product, per sale. So if they have a better price for the product, lower cost, better conversion rate, all helps with that margin. And the second thing is that lifetime value. So how much, if I only, if I sell a blender and a juicer and I have, if I only sell a blender, my competitor only sells a blender. I'm thinking yep. of a competitor right now. They're out of business. They probably have half an employee, yep. which is the owner. It's working part-time. Because yeah. they only have to sell a blender. Hmm. They cannot pay as much as I can per blender. Why? Because that customer, I can even lose money on that customer. Because I've got other products to sell them. I've got an aromatherapy company to provide to, to because uh, a lot of these people want aromatherapy. It's my new business. I've got another business selling health and wellness products, uh, food products, health products to eat. Yeah. And they're all uh, very targeted to the same segment. But mm -hmm. it's allowing that recurring revenue to come in. Um, and plus, uh, we, we have great quality products. So they, they have to have a good experience. If the product is crap, they're not going to buy anything else. A great customer experience, is, good conversion rates. This is to commercial businesses you're selling to, like you're not selling to the, to the end user? No, no, it started, it started as commercial, but now it's purely 95, 99, 95, whatever percent is domestic. Right. Okay, nice. So it's, it's interesting you talk about um, the way that you, you sort of, you've started that first business, the next business, that sort of stuff. Sounds like, and this is, a, this is something that happens I see a lot with entrepreneurs and it seems like you cracked the code there somewhere because most entrepreneurs will start a lot of businesses or start a lot of products and they're great starters of things. But when it actually comes mm. to actually making money and, and getting to the next level and taking that business to the next level, what happens is they just get themselves overwhelmed because they're trying to do too much. They, they shiny object syndrome. Yeah, shiny object syndrome. I've been there. And it's usually the, the businesses they've got emotional attachment to or what they do is emotionally, they won't let go of it and, and they're actually losing their focus. So tell me how you crack that code from going from being able to have lots of different businesses, but still those businesses obviously stay profitable and they grow. How do you do, how, how do, you do that? Let's touch on the last point, emotional attachment. I have no emotional attachment to any of my businesses because I know it's dangerous. I don't care for blenders. I don't have many smoothies anymore. Yep. I don't care for juices, but I know that the people in my company are obsessed in them. We've yep. got the best engineers, the best team members, because they can be emotionally attached. Mm -hmm. But if I'm emotionally attached, that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But if I get emotionally attached, I could drive the business to the ground. Mm -hmm. When do I pivot? When do I expand? If I'm obsessed with blenders, with a specific, with the big commercial blenders, the big strong Vitamix type blenders, which is our main blender, mm -hmm. and then the trend is starting to go towards smaller blenders, but I'm obsessed in that big one, or it goes towards juicing. Mm -hmm. That obsession could, just, could destroy the business. So I pivot. I obsess over the customer. I, no matter what the customer wants, I want to make sure that every single customer is happy. That's an obsession to have. Don't be obsessed with your product. What Amazon always says, Jeff Bezos, be obsessed with the customer. Yep. That's his ethos. Now, in terms of uh, doing too many things at once, shiny object syndrome, I've got that. That's, that's yeah. absolutely right. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> you just might managed to figure out a way to make money out of it, though. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm making money out of it without... I know when to let go of a business because mm -hmm. I'm not emotionally attached. So what you need to do in business, being shiny object syndrome is good in one, in one, of the, one way. It allows you to throw many pebbles because yep. Jim Collins talks about it. And then if you're throwing pebbles 
and you keep throwing them, don't give a crap if they, it hits or, or nothing works, that's gonna fail because you're gonna keep doing all these things, nothing will work. But the, the formula, I don't like to use the word formula, but the way to do it is that you throw these pebbles and when that one hits, you got, you're onto something and then you double down like crazy. I've got businesses that I launched. I launched one business. I love the idea. It's, it was called, it was in Australia as well, a while ago, a few years ago. It was called um, um, Weddings Photographer, no, uh, Hidden Photographer, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Proposal Experts. Okay. And it was, a high, high, if you want to propose to someone, I yep. haven't proposed to anyone, so I've, I haven't been in those people's shoes. But you, you're, if you're married, when you propose, do you have that, if you don't mind me asking, if it's personal, it's okay. Don't, you don't have to answer, but do you have that on camera, like someone filming your proposal when you propose to your wife? No, but I was actually saw a, a, a Dean Graciosi has actually got an ad running in Facebook doing exactly that thing, actually proposing. Oh, Dean Grady. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I want to do. Um, wow. Offer the service and I'll send someone on Shark Tank do it. Is hire a photographer that's trained to hide and catch the moment where you propose to, to your wife right. or husband. Okay. And I just thought it's such a good idea. Like, why wouldn't everyone do it? So the moment in time, you'll never get back, right? It's a moment in time. Yeah, it works well. Even in today's mobile world, you're not going to have someone do it on a flip phone. It's something really valuable. Mm. Uh, it didn't work. It was a dead horse. <laughs> no one Only one client, and I want to contact. Uh, apparently, they're happy with the result. But only one client catch it on camera. And no one else. It just did not work. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of had to let go of that idea. So I've had those ideas that did not work. Mm. Even if I liked the eye concept, I would try to find out why it didn't work. It's a balance on when to give up. And people do ask me, when do you know when to give up? That's difficult. Mm. That's, there's no formula for that. It's more of an art. Like, have you tried all the marketing strategies? Have you looked at competitors? Is anyone doing it right? Why aren't you working? Is it just too expensive to acquire a customer? Or is there no one interested? Are you getting traffic that's not converting? Is it something on your website? Are you not even getting traffic? Is it your copy that's not right? Or is it simply no one's interested? So there's so many questions to ask. If it's mm. easy, everyone will be a millionaire. Yeah. But it's a matter of trying to find that balance. Let go of an idea when the pebble doesn't hit. But if it does hit, throw more pebbles until you get to a cannonball. Yeah. And that's how I've launched all my businesses. I've always done it bootstrapped, efficiently, um, and using that strategy. When something works, I just double down. It's dangerous if you've got too much cash. And you see, um, you know, people burn cash like crazy because they they've got the cash they don't have to worry about. I've done that. Yeah. yeah but somebody has a VC money and they and they go crazy. It's actually it's interesting. Somebody told me that if you ever go to um, you know Silicon Valley and pitch a deal, the first question they'll ask you is how many times have you failed, and has this business failed? And people would go, well, no, I want to come in as being successful. But the reality is, if you if you fail before, they can understand failure. Um, and you can understand what to do not next time. But if you've never encountered it, then it's, it's pretty difficult not, you know, to avoid it. I've heard people critical about this. You know, they're, like, they're like, man, how, how, why do investors, why do the VCs, and I work with a lot of VCs in my other company, IBC, a lot of them in family offices. And they say, why do the VCs um, ask that question? Why do they care if you failed? Why do they want to work with people that failed? It seems failure is being, um, you know. Ostracized. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like I said, you should be failing. No, they start talking about failing is a good thing. Mm. And, um, and that's not the right mindset. But there is truth in that. Because when you fail, you learn things that I learn a lot. I love listening to podcasts, learning from books. But when you actually fail, it, not only you learn, but it mm. changes your whole mindset. And that's a human brain. The human brain learns the best from trauma, unfortunately. Yes. And the trauma <laughs> I've been through, it is, I've been through a lot, has taught me so much to this day. Yeah, I think you learn more from your failures than successes. 
I think, at the end of the day. And sometimes um, it's not really a failure. Sometimes um, I, I remember reading somewhere just recently where Amazon had a go at these pop-up stores and they put these single-purpose pop-up stores in different places and then they got rid of them. And somebody said, oh, it's a failure. I seriously doubt they went in with that attitude. I think they went in with the attitude of testing and seeing what would work and, well, oh, yeah, Amazon failed at that. And it's like, I seriously doubt they, they thought about that. That was more about testing, finding, discovering, you know, seeing where it's going on. In the, uh, data, data, is, Amazon is, is, lives on data, customer data. So that's, mm -hmm. that's something that would probably get as value from these pop-up stores. Yeah. And they're testing a concept because they're going to brick and mortar. They just want to understand the strategy. Um, yep. But that kind of links to your other question because Amazon's got a lot of cash to burn and that works to yep. their advantage. They could easily burn it all. <laughs> well, I don't know. If that's <laughs> um, oh, they probably could. <laughs> Jeff, Boss, Jeff Bezos. Well, apparently he spends a billion dollars a year, sells his shares every year and spends a billion dollars on space research. I heard so, there that his other yeah. company, what is it called? Blue, no. What's the other company? It's, like, it's a bit like Elon Musk kind of concept, I think. Yeah, like similar to similar to SpaceX. I forgot what it's called. Yeah. But going back to the to the having too much cash, it is dangerous. Mm. And um, something I read and I've experienced firsthand, and I have to thank my brother, who's also my CFO, a COO, sorry, and he does a great job. It's scarcity breeds creativity. Yes. When you're when you just don't have the resources, I can't remember who said that in some podcast. But when you just don't have the resources, somehow. You manage to do everything that you were able to do before with 20 employees or 50 employees or 100 employees with a quarter of those employees. Yep. Um, and when you thought it was impossible, it's somehow possible. How? <laughs> Go figure. You find <laughs> softwares that can do it. You find areas that you don't cut. You focus on the 80-20 rule, Pareto's law. Pareto's law. You, you don't focus on that 80% that only brings you the 20% of the results. You focus on the other 20% and yep. double down on that. So scarcity does breed creativity and that's one advantage you have as an entrepreneur because i think a lot of them will say oh, i wish i had the cash i could do this and i do the advertising and this and i said well you probably just burn it you, you wouldn't think through the process um and I would, it's, uh, it's a balance i would say if you have no cash you're in a tough spot mm. uh, because people like me that have the cash will just immediately go to market yep. a lot faster so we'll have speed when something works when a pebble hits i'll double down like crazy because i've got the money to spend on it yeah if you don't it's going to be hard. So cash is good, but too much cash, cash, if you're not smart in managing your cash, like you are, John, with your experience, I saw your website. But if you're not smart in managing money, you don't have that skill, it is, it is definitely dangerous. And I've seen that with my other company, IBC. It's in the crypto space. Mm -hmm. Where can you find more money right now in crypto? Yeah. Uh, businesses that we've worked with raising not hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions, not tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Actually, I was listening to an interview yesterday. Um, with a business called uh, Block One. They raised about four point something billion dollars, John. Um, and they're well, spending it. It's funny, is it, it, it basically is it's, you know, cryptocurrency. So what, why, A, why are they raising it? And B, what are they doing with it? So exactly. So they're raising, they're, they're, they're spending it pretty wisely. That's what's interesting. They actually only spend about, it's, it's only, I'll tell you why I say only. They spend about a few hundred million dollars. So not even up to, but not even a quarter of that money. Yep. which I don't think is a bad thing. I'm like, that's a lot of money. But then the interviewer asks them, mm -hmm. why are you spending fast enough? Everyone's wondering, you know, what are you doing with all that money? Why aren't you spending it fast enough? Shouldn't you just invest in more businesses? And I'm just sitting there listening. What do you mean not spending it fast enough? They spent hundreds of millions of dollars in the last in 12 months since they raised it. How's mm -hmm. that not fast enough? They got 4 billion. Let it last them, year, last them uh, you know, through the tough times. But they're spending it wisely. They've created a lot of value. They've invested in a lot of startups. They've built a lot of protocols that are going on the enterprise level. So they're actually using it wisely. Not many are, but 
I was surprised to see them use it wisely today. But um, it's just funny that my mentality was there's so much money there that people are upset that they're not spending it fast enough. That's mind boggling. <laughs> it is when you think about the other way around, right? Because most of the most of the first thing you know things is trying to save you money for a rainy day, right? So they don't want to. Yeah. So I got one of my, one of my reminders every week. I got Asana reminders, and some of these reminders are key things every week that every week or month, depending how important it is. And I, one of them yesterday was remember to save money for a rainy day because I expect. <laughs> If we've been in a bull run for way too long, not only Australia, but globally, I look at the global economy. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, no one knows when, but I have to be ready for it. So there's many ideas I can start behind, behind the camera here, the whiteboard. There's a million of them. I'm looking at them right now. I can't do them all. I'd love to do them all. All of them can make money. But what if, what if just everything dries up like in 08? And you have to be ready for that. And the thing is, also at the same time, when those people make more money in depressions and, and bad times are making good times because they're, they're cashed up ready to go. So I think sometimes it's having that ability to take advantage of buying at a company that might be struggling, um, that might not have been struggling two years ago. I mean, um, you know, apparently one point there, you know, I was just reading before where Marvel Comics had the option to buy DC Comics at one point. And no, no. they passed on it. They didn't think that they w it was worth it that they thought that there wasn't, you know, was something wrong with the business. Or Windows, uh, didn't Windows, didn't Bill Gates have an option to buy Apple or invest more money in Apple? Well, probably. Invested? I mean, the thing is that I think Google was offered, to Yahoo offered Google a million dollars once to buy Google. I heard, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and so sometimes and it, those, those opportunities come up, right? And sometimes they'll buy it. They'll take those opportunities to get out of the marketplace. Warren Buffett's whole investment philosophy, save up cash as much as you can until the world, everyone feels like the world's coming to an end. Because when you feel the world's coming to an end, it probably isn't. That's just your emotions. That's right. right. And, that's another. and that's where the, they can just grab all these. As a, as a, if you have a lot of money, you'll acquire all these cheap businesses. Mm -hmm. If you're just a business that, you know, with a bit of money, you can't buy other businesses. Mm -hmm. That's when cheap marketing can come in and you can grab market share. So, and again, it's not like you spend like crazy during tough times because you don't know how they last. Yeah. It's not binary. It's just a balance between the two. Mm. Um, but it's it's good to cash up. Cash is just so powerful. So let's talk about a little bit of um, you know you, you set up multiple businesses and there's a obviously you've got some process or something you do there. Could, do you put pe keep people in place to run those businesses? Do you give them responsibility? How do you move? Because how many companies do you run right now? Um, <laughs> mainly, I'm involved in three. Um, um, three that I'm personally involved in. So how do you, and, um, how, do you how do I run them? Mm. Um, look, you have to get the cliches done, the, the, the obvious things. Hire the right people. You hear this all the time. It's freaking important. One of my reminders oh, is yes. always, yeah. say that again? Kind of important. <laughs> it's extremely, extremely, extremely important. Extremely important. And I've got a reminder, always be hiring. Always. Uh, because even when you're not hiring, look for them. Because when you're hiring, it mm. takes time. Mm. So they're sitting there. Um, building those relationships. So hiring the wrong people, uh, hiring the right people is key for that. That's number one. Learning to delegate, building systems. Mm -hmm. That's so important. A business is essentially a group of people and a system working together. If you hire the right people and you build the right system, ecosystem for them to operate in, using the right softwares, the right culture, etc., um, and that's the winning formula for a business to work well. If you don't do it properly, you can end up like me, either one business going to shit Yep. And another business, um, because I didn't hire the right people, yep. and mainly in, in accounting, as, we, as I mentioned earlier. And the other business is IBC, which got scammed because I trusted the wrong people without my due diligence. 
and yep. that really lost me a lot really? of money. <laughs> I've been there too. Cost me a million, cost me a million dollars in the wrong, trusting the wrong people. So, you know, you it's crazy. To, and you have to learn from failure and learn to what what better questions to ask. I think it's how Tony Robbins used to say. You know, it's better asking better questions is really where it makes a big difference. Oh, Tim and Bill, uh, not Tim or Bill. Oh, Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss's book Tools and Titans. I don't know who mentions it, mm-hmm. but um, Tim concludes that. It, it, he can measure a person's success by the difficult questions they ask or difficult conversations they have. Mm. Um, and you've got to have those conversations. You've got to ask, Hey, you know, can I speak to your references? Mm. Um, who, where have you worked? Don't only call the references of the person, call the places that he didn't tell you as a reference. Mm. Why weren't they given as a reference? The references are obviously going to be good. Why would he give them? A bad reference, right? <laughs> Great. These are the references. Now let me see who didn't you give me. Let me call them. Mm. That's proper due diligence. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Asking the hard questions, I think that's a, that's a certainly one to put in the in the list box when you're doing stuff. Because we used to, when we used to have a, we had a system to employ people before, and we'd have this questionnaire we'd ring, and and one of the questions we always asked, and I think it's the easiest question. I've had this happen to me before, where I've had a, a previous employee call me up, and I think Del Warrens rang me an hour and a half on the phone. It's actually on the, in the car driving, so I wasn't caring too much. I got an hour and a half in, and I said. You ask me questions for an hour and a half. You should have just asked me one question and that would have solved an hour and a half's conversation. And that question is, would you hire that person again? And, and if you say yes, then that's the answer to the question, right? If you say no, why wouldn't you hire that person? Is there a reason for it? Is it personal or is it some other reason? And you solve the problem, you've solved it in 30 seconds. And, and just ask the same around that question all the time. But I always think, so we still always ask that question. Just, would you hire them again? And ask, wait for the reaction. If they, you could tell if they were lying, right? <laughs> you could really tell if they were going to lie to you. So at the end of the day, I think it's that's the thing. It's it's that's a hard question because people, it, it would really give you the, the the core reason why they left or were they fired? Did they leave? Did they grow out of it? What happened? You know. I'm gonna write that note, send it to my HR. Yeah, <laughs> I've had so many. Like I got sick of this because I had 60 staff at one point. And, and, and I got so many, and they all went on to bigger things. So our plan was always when we hired someone was to always leave them better uh, when they left us. So they would, they would go to a better job. And a lot of them did, because we do a lot of IT stuff. They had a limited shelf life, a lot of them support. And they had to go better, you know, go better. So we trained them up, we gave them exposure. So when they moved on, they spoke well of us, not bad of us. And I think that's, that's the important thing. And then when someone rings us up, so look, no, we wouldn't employ them again. The reason is just that they've grown out of the business. That, mm. You know, they wouldn't be, they'd be too good for us now. Unless they were going in a role we don't have a, a vacancy for, and that worked really well. That's good. No, I appreciate it. I'll definitely send it through to my HR. Let me change my quick internet connection because this one seems to be playing up. I've got a backup one. Give me right. a second. Right, back. Yeah, you dropped in and out. That's cool. We'll cut that. Um, the clapper. <laughs> All right. So, um, you talk a bit about um, Bitchain and, and cryptocurrency, and that's something that's probably um, for most people, I think, and even myself included. You know, they look at upon it as an as a, a risky venture, something that is, is new and might take off and you get the same old story all the time. Like whenever something like this comes along, like the internet, for example, it'll never take off. Um, that sort of conversation starts. So where do you sit in this whole 
cryptocurrency and also want to talk a little bit about e-commerce and consulting and all that sort of stuff as soon as we get after that one. But just t tell me a little bit about what, what your thoughts about this whole cryptocurrency thing. Yeah, look, it's, it's very simple for me. The human brain tends to overestimate the short-term impact of innovation and underestimate the long-term impact of innovation. Yep. Cryptocurrency will not change the world today. It will not change the world next year or next five years. It will change the world in a decade or two. The same way internet took decades to change the world. It's a long-term play for me. I did not expect the gold rush that happened in 2017 that's happening now, but I should have um, expected it because when there's risk, mm -hmm. there's higher reward. That's just the way it is. When a market is gray like cannabis, there's more money to be made because all, all the smart, not smart money, but all the, 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 the conservative money will not come in because it's just too, too risky for them and they don't need the risk. Like family offices haven't put in their money in the, in the crypto space because they're very conservative with the way they spend. VCs have entered, uh, the, the risk takers, have entered the space and some of them have gotten great rewards. Now you'll expect it to go up and down, now it's going up. It will go down, it might not go up. I don't, give, I don't care. It's for me, I just look at the present. Where is it right now? Where is the opportunity? And how can I position myself long term? Now in terms of cryptocurrency blockchain, very simple. It's an incredible innovation. If you're mm -hmm. looking to make millions short, short term, it's possible. You know, people love to say this. They love to say, if you're looking to make millions short term, get out of it. You're not going to make it. <laughs> Ask all the cannabis multimillionaires that made the millions back then. Ask the, the crypto millionaires that made the millions in 2018. The mm -hmm. only thing is keeping those millions is hard. Yeah. But where the real money is, is not only making short term six or seven figures. I look at, because it just doesn't mean when you get to a certain level, it doesn't mean that much. It's looking at the eight, nine figures. And that's where you have a long-term view of the industry. So if you position yourself, anyone that's watching this wants to look at the crypto blockchain space, definitely a good space to enter. Mm -hmm. And um, because it's not as competitive as a traditional space, because not everyone's in there. It's very new. It's, not everyone understands it. So that's the advantage. But if you want to make real money and build a sustainable long-term business, um, look at how you're going to position your business now for five, 10 years uh, from now. So the people that scammed me, as I said last year, mm -hmm. They made some money. They lost me uh, seven figures when they did that in 2018. Mm. But I'm in a position now and I came out stronger and I, the brand is strong. And I started personal branding, doing podcasts. I opened LinkedIn. I didn't have LinkedIn. All that started when that event happened um, because I want to build that, that brand and that reputation in the industry, entrepreneurship and blockchain mm. and crypto. I hope that answers your question. One thing happens to another, isn't it? Like it, it seems like it's meant to be. Like it's almost money spent on something that actually is an investment in something else. Yeah, look, people love to say some, everything happens for a reason. It, it, I, I like to disagree with it to an extent. It doesn't happen for a reason. It happens because it happened. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you give it a reason. Mm. So it's kind of a stoic mindset. The Obstacle is the Way is a book I love. It's got a stoic approach where I got scammed. All right, how can I make this an opportunity? But let me finally start my personal branding. I didn't have LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, which made it easy for them to scam me and pretend. You know, yeah. They took leadership of the company and they took mm -hmm. decisions. I was behind the scenes building it. Um, so that kind of pushed me to say, hey, you know, personal branding is pretty important pretty and I shouldn't important. delay it anymore. Yeah. So, um, hey, your, that internet connection you switched to is worse than the one you had before. The other one was all right. Oh, really? It's worse yeah. now. Let me see which one I have. I'll go back to the other. Would you like me to go back to the other one? The other one was good. It was no problem. The other one, this one sort of. Oh, one. my apologies. All right, let me go That's back. Right. I'll wait, wait till you finish that one because you're going well. So I didn't wanna, it locks up a little bit. So what happened then? I'll fix that one. Well, a bit of green screen stuff going on. <laughs>
bit of behind the scenes error there. That's all right. <laughs> Green screen thing. I've changed. I've changed the internet again. Oh, that's better. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I'll just mark this off because I. Yeah, because it was starting to lock up and stuff. I think it's going to degrade. Interesting. Drop out on me. Okay. So, um, so tell me, we had a bit of a discussion about e-commerce versus consulting. So it sounds like you you've done both. Um, what do you? What do you think is easiest for an entrepreneur startup? Because I think e-commerce can be dangerous if you don't have the cash behind you because if you're not stocking something then and you run out of stock and the whole logistics of all of that, it's a lot harder than, say, consulting. So what, let's have a conversation about one versus the other and what, what do you think is the best? I was asked this yesterday, no, two days ago, and I made a quick video about it. Mm-hmm. And then I posted on, on, they posted it on LinkedIn or YouTube. And it's a very interesting question because I've, I've built, I've boost chats from point. So I've bootstrapped my e-commerce business to, to the to the million seven and first year eight and second year eight figures. And then I've bootstrapped my consulting business, IBC, in 2017 to seven figures in less than six months. So I've had my success with both. So I'm agnostic. I don't care which one. I don't want to promote any of them. I'll just talk to you very objectively. Making short-term, you mentioned something. First, I'll comment on your point. If you don't have stock, you can still go ahead with e-commerce. You can't do Amazon because you have to have stock with Amazon. Yep. But e-commerce would still, um, would still work because you can do pre-orders and build. I'm doing it right now in the US with one of my products in the CBD space, you know, talking cannabis CBD. Okay, so yeah. I'm doing it with other to test the market. I've mm-hmm. done this many times. When I don't do it, it tends to backfire. So you have to do the pebble approach and test. Mm-hmm. You can, both of them could work for an entrepreneur just starting out. E-commerce is easier to make that short-term money. Why? Because it's dependent on you as a person. You can actually go there. When you're selling a product, it depends on your website, on the copywriting, on the product itself, on the way you market it, on the community you have. When you're, dealing, when you're offering consulting services, it mostly depends on you. Yes. If you don't have a massive company, if you don't even have a website, but you're there following someone up, giving them your time, uh, contacting them on LinkedIn, the best platform, it's easier to make that small money. Mm. So initial stages, entrepreneurship is best for anyone that doesn't have any money and just wants to just get some money to pay the bills to be able to build something of value. Now, scaling to a McKinsey's level consulting business, that's tough. Mm. Because it's dependent on people. People are difficult to scale because trusting the right people, keeping the right people, and then building systems. The more your company depends on people, the more failure points it has, yep. points of failure that it has, the more you build systems around it, and that's what I've done with IBC, my consulting business, the easier it is to scale. So to scale a consulting business is building those systems. An e-commerce business is, easy, is, easier, is easier to scale. It's not as dependent on um, people, obviously. Mm-hmm. Systems are still paramount, but it's a product. You, yeah. can buy, you, can buy, you can import 1,000 units of something from your supplier in China. You can't hire 1,000 units a thousand people for your consulting business tomorrow, um, in, in a month or two. Mm, so yeah, exactly. So scaling is difficult. That's common sense. But then again, I'm not saying it's, and it's impossible. I'm scaling both my e-commerce and my consulting business. E-commerce is good for initial stages to get some money through, uh, uh, through to your bank account. E-commerce is easier to make those um, seven, eight, nine, ten figures. And if you look at all the top, uh, all the most successful companies, they're all product based companies not many of them are consulting businesses and i think you know theoretically there'd be more money involved in consulting but then you can burn so much more money in, in wages i mean i've been to consulting things through a consulting business where we you know like set some parameters to make sure that it worked um i spent six months trying to get these kids to do what i wanted them to do 
had lots of systems in place, they just would not do it. And they kept on asking for more and more money. And I said to them at the end of the day, if you guys, if you keep this up, you're gonna get fired. And anyway, I went for six months and one day I pulled them all in the office and fired them all one after another. Because the reality was, is they wouldn't listen. So I said, you guys gotta understand you can cut wages now, and keep on asking for more wages. But the reality is if you don't deliver on those consulting hours, then the business but that, that shows that shows the issue like this is i can talk a lot about how to make that work like how do you make it how do you get people to listen how do you build system by building systems without having having people follow those systems mm-hmm. and and it's hard to tell why that happened like were they not the right people to hire was your system not taught to them was it not the mm-hmm. right system were they um, not shown how to use the system was there no feedback loop to tell you what didn't work what did work I think they, think they, knew cool? better. they actually knew better and that's one of the dangers I think of when you've got specialized people working for you they um, particularly in, in the IT area where they think they know better and what they'll do is they'll go oh no I don't agree with what you just told me there I'm not going to follow that system I'm going to charge that price I'm going to charge this because the reality is is that they think they know better and they've never got the experience so in the end that's what you know, in this case, mm. is what happened. They were young kids and, you know, it's in their 20s, but they thought they knew better. And I told them, you didn't know better because <laughs> it's not, you're not making yeah. the money, you're not covering your wages. That's the thing. Like, if they think they know better, because I've been there as well. And, and there's sometimes where you just can't, uh, and I've, I've also had it with developers, I've had it with people that think they know better. And I've had people that think they know better disagree with each other because yeah. they were leading the project. <laughs> and, um, and look, that's, that's what I mean, it's high touch. Like you have to sit there, speak to them, tell them why it doesn't work, explore, say, look, I agree with you, but let's do it this way. I could be wrong. And you have to be humble enough to say, look, I could, I'm not as good as you and I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it my way and, and I, hope you, I hope it works, but I could end up being wrong. So there's all that, these, all, these things are not easy to scale. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you're talking about six people. Imagine if you have 60. I was hiring a person a day in my consulting business at the peak. A person a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine well, training them. And yeah. Exactly, and you have to you have to hire fast, fire fast, because it's mm. hard to vet people when you're hiring a person a day. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, yeah. So um, it's it, it just kind of confirms the point that it is difficult to scale. It's not impossible. But um, I want to mention so it's difficult to scale e-commerce. It's easier to scale. That's another point I wanted to say about um, difficulties of of. Um, I'll come back to me later. You're right. And so, I, I, I mean, think obviously, with e-commerce, you know, if you can't get the stock, you know, sometimes if you end up a scenario where you, you're trying to, and, and I mean, that's a lot of decisions to make at the start, isn't cash. it? Yeah. You know this best, like managing the cash of the company. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's interesting. I think at the end of the day, though, it, it comes down to one key thing we spoke about earlier, is the cost to acquire a customer. I think if you don't know that number, then you got end up in a situation where, the business will drive you and you will never know how much money you're really making because it's, it's, you think you're making money and then the next week you've got bills to pay because that cost, that advertising cost gets you. And, and this is more difficult to determine with a consulting business. Mm. How long will a customer, a client be with you for? Yeah. That's a lot harder to measure, mm. especially when it comes to an industry like mine, blockchain and cryptocurrency. There is no historical data I could look at and I've, done, I've never done consulting. Mm. So that was really difficult to look at the churn rate and all that. Um, so yeah, consulting is stuff. I'm not a big fan of it uh, because it doesn't allow you um, to scale easily. It's not impossible. Look at McKinsey's, look at Boston Consulting, a lot of successful stories. But it's also, look, uh, John, another, another quick, sorry, I'm just going to point one, but that's the point that I forgot before. It's right. the moat, the, the moat you have around your business, like how difficult it is for competitors to come in. Yes. With an e-commerce business, it's easy to build that moat. That moat can be anything. It could be 
a better product could be more efficient logistics because then you have lower costs. You can spend more on marketing, better customer service, better software. It could be many things. In consulting, it's more difficult. It's better people, but those people, there's a lot of talent out there. What can you build? What's a moat you can build around your business as a consulting business? Yeah. That's difficult. My answer was two things. The systems you have, which are hard to track. Yes. And the other one was the brand equity, building a reputation in the space. But those are a lot harder for, they're not as powerful as a brand for a product mm. or an actually good patented product. You, you can patent a product. Mm. Uh, you can build a brand behind a product. It's much harder to build a brand behind a consulting business. Not impossible, but it's more difficult. And it's impossible. You can't patent your consulting business. Maybe some systems, but I've never done that. I think I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs and, and sometimes they go into this concept of digital products and then try to sell, essentially you're selling e-commerce, right? You're trying to sell a digital product. That could be a course. It could be something a bit bigger than that. It could be one-on-one, -on -one, but the reality is it's tough to start. So I always say to them, start with consulting or coaching as a startup to get some cash in the door. And, and one of the things you'll learn, you'll learn about the customer, you'll learn about sales. And because you're selling a high ticket item, you'll actually get better at sales. And then if you want to move into an e-commerce digital product, then start moving because the reality is it is difficult to scale from a very small business up to a big business consulting. Um, and it's very dangerous. I mean, I've been there before. So you've got to be careful that you can scale that thing. But maybe it's not the end game. The end game might have been that you want to just get some cash in the door, understand your customers, and then offer them something. It's what we've done before with products. We, we start with consulting and coaching. We end up with products. We always sell reoccurring based products or something that, will give the business some flow through because you know one-on-one -on -one time is, is gone. It's not very difficult to get that back once you spend it. Exactly. exactly. And look, a lot of um, consulting businesses are pivoting to SaaS products. Mm. So, um, and that's something I was looking at doing last year. And it's an option. It's always an option and, and it will always be an option. Now, in terms of selling um, digital products, educational products, that's something I'm starting to do now. So um, I've only just launched it recently. I'm, I'm doing all that personal branding, like mm -hmm. getting myself out there. And I'm, I'm enjoying it. I love just going to those incubators or speaking to those uh, entrepreneurs, helping them out. It's just, it's actually fulfilling, believe it or not. I never expected mm -hmm. it to be. Yeah. But then I thought, let me, let, why don't I monetize this? Like it just, so I can spend more on marketing. Because mm -hmm. if I go to my CFO and say, yeah, look, um, I'm, I'm spending that money on, uh, on, on my YouTube videos where I talk about certain things about entrepreneurship. There's yeah. tremendous value and they're getting incredible, uh, mm. a great response. But then his responses are, where do we get the return <laughs> to come up? So I decided, I'm like, let me give it a shot. And I launched uh, my first digital product. Now, I don't want to plug it here, but I want to mention that it's not just a digital product because it's not only a program, a mastermind, a program. But I, want, I always try to do things differently. Mm -hmm. Whether my e-commerce, I did it differently. With my consulting business, I try to do things differently. In this case as well, to, to stand out from the crowd, I've also given access to anyone that joins it to be able to see me run my company. So they'll be able to jump on my calls with my management team, my senior team, um, see my strategic calls. So it will be a step further from a program. So it's mm. not only learning from a program, not only being part of a mastermind with me and others, but also seeing the ex execution. Exactly, seeing the execution firsthand. Now, in terms of launching a digital product, maybe you can have me in a year's time and I can tell you how I failed at it or succeeded at it. Because it's, it's very new, but it's also very lucrative. It's very... Mm. There's no cost of product. It's, it's cost of goods, oh, very limited cost. And it's when you scale, mm. so you can scale um, uh, very easily scale your business once you build your product. And there's a lot of success stories out there of people that have done it well. So I'm giving it a try and I'll probably come up with some unique strategies like this idea of, of giving access to my business 
mm. and no one's done it. I haven't seen anyone do it. And I'll probably come up with other interesting ideas and I've got a whole list of them. I like to do business differently. Mm. And I'll, I'll see them because I've done well with, with e-commerce products. I've done well with consulting. And that will be my first digital product. So fingers crossed. And I think like it, the um, I was involved in the Tony Robbins and Dean Graciosi launched just recently with a mastermind. Mastermind, yeah. Yeah. And it was very interesting because they, they because the combined effort, and they used affiliates very well. So there was, it was an interesting thing when they launched their business, their affiliate program that they set up. They selected affiliates and I was one of them. And the interesting thing was that they sold nearly 16,000 um, um, memberships, if you like, or let, um, courses at, at about $2,000 each. So that's a $33 million launch, biggest launch probably ever. And the reality was that all happened in two weeks. They sold half of those the night, night of the actual launch. They sold only 6,000 at that night. And then that was the emotional buyers and then the logical buyers that spent two weeks convincing them to buy. So they already knew that there was a logical buyer and an emotional buyer. And I think that's the interesting thing that never really thought about clearly about is when someone buys from them, they buy from two reasons. They either buy for emotional or logical reasons. And sometimes they'll, you know, they'll buy emotionally justified with logic. Um, sometimes they just buy emotional and don't justify with anything. <laughs> and I think that's the, the key to that whole thing is that, um, you know, people will buy for different reasons. You understand that and, and basically make sure that you, you, you sort of cater to that. Don't just assume that if they don't buy today, they won't buy tomorrow. And I think that's such a, it's so fascinating watching how they did it and learning from them. It was an yeah, incredible yeah. launch. And they opened and that interesting talk about this whole concept of, they almost opened the back door and they actually showed, they, they had a web, uh, Facebook group and they talked about all their problems and, and they told what was going on. So it was a very open door. And I've never seen a launch done that way before because typically they're very, you know, they close off, they don't tell you much. These guys basically open the front door and just say, hey, let's come in and see what's going on. We'll tell you the problems, we'll tell you what's going wrong. We'll tell you what's going problems on. With, problems with what, who, like uh, well, Dean Gray. For example, yeah. when they launched that night and sold 6,000 copies they actually their service crashed oh, <laughs> so, wow. and so they actually had backups of backups they spent all night rekeying all the orders um so there was absolute if you want to look at absolute failure for most businesses that would fail in that situation their orders did not get processed they knew that that could happen so they had like backups of backups of backups that plan b Plan B and C and D, but the reality was that most businesses would have just fallen apart at that point, right? They would have. No, oh, I'm obsessed. I I I I go crazy if anyone in my team doesn't have Plan B. Yeah. Because Plan A tends to fail most of the time. Yeah, Plan um, A was a good idea, right? <laughs> plan B is the reality of what a good idea, and sometimes. Plan and when you get to a certain look for for when you're starting out, having if you're young and starting out, having no Plan B, Plan C, I don't care because you have plenty of time. Mm. But when you get to a certain stage and you have a business and you have bills to pay. Yeah. If you can't launch a product, you can't import a product and 100% failure rate. Mm. Uh, and that will happen. Like the supplier did not put one screw properly. Mm. Um, so having a plan B, exactly. Having different uh, points in your system to spot those things and plus having plan B in case any of those points fail yeah. um, uh, would be crucial. And yeah, it was really interesting to see Dean and, and Tony because also the, the messenger bot they had, also yep. the company that did it for them, Apparently a crash or some problems happened with it. And they had to find some last minute. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that's right. And I think that's the thing. Most people think they all think things will go right in technology. And I think that's the thing to remember is that you've got to have that backup plan. Um, I'm, I'm running an event tomorrow night um, for a client and it's a live event and having done live events for people before those things can go drastically wrong. Things can go pear shaped very fast. 
Um, and so basically we've got some backup plans. It's only one hour presentation, so you know, we can cover it, but we've got another presentation a half hour later. And so we've got this really close thing because we got overbooked. So we actually got, you know, and I said something, somebody can suffer from success because sometimes you can actually get too much. And kind of what happened with these guys with Tony Robbins stuff was they suffered from success because they got so much in one go. Within a space of two hours, they had 6,000 orders. Most e-commerce systems would struggle with that. And so the reality was that they got way too much too quick. And that can also be dangerous in business too if you're not set up for that um, and get overwhelmed with it. And then you don't make any money out of it. Basically what happens is you squander that because you didn't have anything set up and to handle it. Yeah, I've been there. So I've had... You know, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> the scales suddenly skyrocket. You just don't have enough stock. That's a common problem in e-commerce, mm. managing stock or a consulting business. One interesting thing for anyone having a consulting business, I, ha- I heard that on an interview. What one person does, because one problem with consulting is that you don't know when you have too, ma- too many clients or too little. So if you hire a lot of people, but you have a, a lot of clients, yeah, what's, exactly. Um, uh, and then two clients leave, one big client leaves. What are you going to do with those people? Let them go. You spent months training them and hiring them and then letting them go. When you ask them to come back, they probably say, screw you. You know, you just let me go. (laughs) And you just lost all these months of training that person. So what's the solution to that? And what one person does, got a consulting business, and he's talking about it. He has a very interesting system where he has a group of part-time contractors and a group of full-timers. Every time he gets clients, he gives them to those contractors. And whenever those contractors, whenever there's enough work for two full-timers, he gets a full-timer to take on some of that work and leave some of it with the contracts. Yeah. And whenever that reaches that level of, I think it's the number is two. Whenever he has enough for two more, again, it reaches enough workloads for two more, so there's enough contractors doing work for two full-timers. He brings one more and keeps some work with the contractors. So the yeah. contractors are easily, because then when work drops, yep. instead of letting go of the work for the full-timers, he drops the work with the contractors. Because yep. they're fluid and they understand how it is they have other work that's part of the way they do business. Exactly. They're, they're ready for it. They cope with it, yeah. And we do a lot of contractors in my business, um, the same thing, because I cannot predict sometimes with publishing, for example, I can't predict how many books will, how many authors will take on. I can't predict that. So having a bunch of editors sitting there doing nothing is not a great business plan. So, and editors like to move between things. So having that contractor base is important. I think a lot of business owners forget that, that you know, they don't have to hire everyone. And, and everybody, you can hire better people for, for, for one-off contracts for a flat price and get far more out of them than you'll ever get out of a staff member because they basically, you know, they're almost padding the job out to a degree, right? Whereas a contractor, once you have the job finished, they can get on the next one. So I think it's a great, and it's a world, I think the world's changing. I think the laws haven't caught up with it, particularly in Australia. Like contractors in Australia are still uh, alien to the taxation system that do not understand it. And I think that's- I heard about that, yeah. I remember a few years ago when I was still living in Australia, I remember that issue. How it's still there. They haven't solved it. They haven't looked at it and said, a contractor, if someone works for you and does a fair bit of job for, oh, they're an employee now. Suddenly they're an employee. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. No, they're not. I, I they just did a bit more work this month than last month, right? That issue is still ongoing? Yeah. Yeah. And it's never been addressed because they don't understand it. And, and I think that the biggest problem they're faced with is that, you know, they want to make sure that the employee, i.e. contractor, is protected. And the reality is the contractor doesn't want to be protected, right? He's a reason he's yeah, yeah, exactly, business exactly, he doesn't want to be protected. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's dangerous. But it's, yeah, I mean, contract, that's a secret I think that I've seen a lot of people do is contracts and good automation systems, good ways to make sure that you can control those contractors 
I did a uh, virtual summit interview with a guy a while back now where he actually ran a piece of software that actually screenshots every five to 10 minutes of what they're doing. And oh, we do that track. as well. We have to use it. We have yeah. to use it. And, and, and that was the biggest difference between us making money, not making money, because we could actually keep track of the contractors and what they were doing. And they also, it had a ability to look at their productivity at the same time based on keystrokes. So straight away, you could tell that someone wasn't very productive. They, I mean, you can do screenshots and, not, and go, go to the beach, right? But the reality is they're not moving that mouse and moving that keyboard, then the reality is not very productive. So we knew how much productive people were. And I think that's the secret is that if you've got something you can't keep an eye on, and even if you do keep an eye on, I mean, I reckon that I was kept better eye on these contractors who were living on the other side of the world than the staff beside me. Because you can't be sitting over their shoulder all the time anyway. To be able to see that. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. We've used that software. That software is it's just crucial. Like so many, especially when you're scanning fast and, and being a person, you said you were scammed, I was scammed as well. Yeah. Uh, people screwing you within your company. Look, it's all good. And it's all, what is, how do you say? It's all well and good. It's all well and good just to, to say, hey, you have to trust people and um, give them that, that, that tremendous respect and you just got to trust them. I'm not saying it's bad. It works for some people, but mm. there's always going to be bad. I used to have that approach. I, my weakness was trusting people too much. Yeah. It works in many cases, but you have to know to trust them, but you have to understand human nature. Yeah. And some people will abuse that trust. It's just the way it is. Mm. So you've got to trust them. You can't show them that you don't trust them, but you've got to use that, play, that program. So what we used to say to people is we have that program for accounting purposes, which we do because mm. we have to measure them to see how much to yeah. pay them. So we have it for accounting purposes, for legal purposes. Give them an excuse. Mm. So mm. you're saying, I trust you, but that program is there just for, for, um, for, for the, for, the for us, it was like, hey, now you know what hours to bill. You don't get loose track. So then it was able to become a tool, right? And so in some respects, if it's, if it's useful for someone and they get something out of it, great. Otherwise, you know, yeah. They, it, look, treat people with respect. You have to do that to get the most out of them because if they hate you, they're not going to be productive. So treat them with respect. Treat them like with human beings. Mm. Treat them like you want to treat your customers. That's the right approach. But it's not that easy. Otherwise, all the nice people would be the millionaires. It's, it's not the case. Um, a better way of looking at it, and there's a book called um, Multipliers. And it's the way I've been running my businesses um, all along, not as well as the book Multipliers says. But when I read Multipliers, it made sense, and I started doing it. It's about treating them well, but also pushing them to be better. Mm-hmm. So anyone in managing people, so you keep pushing and pushing. That's the last level you want to reach them, where my left hand is. Yeah. I'm not, for anyone in the podcast, too, too bad. You keep pushing them to that line, that, that line of you want them to get better, improve. So you push and push it. When they get to that line, so you get as much as you can. And then when they feel like they're breaking, you kind of take a step back and let them relax. So yeah. you push them as much as you can and then you let them relax. They take just two steps forward, one step back to relax. And then again, two steps forward, you go above that line, one step back. And you keep mm-hmm. pushing them and then letting them relax pushing them and giving them a lot of compliments and praise and you've done well. And that keeps people to grow. That's what the multipliers talks about. And that's the way I like to manage my business. And most people never get back to the previous level. It's a must rubber band strategy. So the idea is they'll never get back to the previous level. Interesting. One, one very wise man once told me that employees will, will uh, start because of the boss. They'll join the organization because of the boss or their boss, their immediate boss, whatever, but they'll also leave because of the boss. And so you've got to understand that, you know, that's the, the leadership of that business and the way that works. That person in leadership, if they're toxic or they're not doing the right thing, people leave. You've got to be very careful that that's, you know, the losing good staff because the worst case about it is if the good staff will leave and the bad staff stay. 
<laughs> you know, then you've got a real problem on your hands to deal with. Then the got- toxic culture is really dangerous. I had a, uh, there's a, a podcast I had an interview on. It's called Culture Eats Strategy. It's all about culture. Mm. And he was asking me, I think one thing he asked me, how important, no, another podcaster asked me, what's the most important thing? How important is culture for a business starting out? Mm. My answer was, you know, don't, I don't care about culture in the early days because mm. you need to get money in the bank before you worry about culture. Yeah. But when is culture important is when you're starting to hire and scale. Yeah. And why I'm saying this because culture is based on you as an entrepreneur. I'm a very driven person, energetic, always want more. Speed is very important. And our whole and efficiency and our entire culture is based on that. Mm-hmm. on the, the values that I hold true. So uh, as an entrepreneur, as uh, you're starting a company, when you're scaling, understand that the culture will be built around you. So fix yourself to fix the company. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. All right, so we've just about come up to the hour. So I, so I promised we'd stop before the hour finished up. So I want to ask you one last question. We usually ask the guests to put them on the spot. And it's probably a little harder because you're still fairly young right now. Um, but in the early days, what advice would you give to your younger self now that would have made so much more difference back then. And, and was, how long have you been in business now? 10 years-ish, I'm guessing? No, no, no. Less than that, how old are you now? I started, I'm 29. 29, so, so less than 10 years. What would you tell your, your 22-year-old self that, that at the time that you wish you'd I wish I, remember, I wish I remembered the, the answer in the last, uh, last podcast I had because that would be cheating, but I can't remember it. So lucky, I'm on the spot. <laughs> to find another one. <laughs> yeah, but it's good, it's good. It's, an, it's an interesting questions. Mm. Um, I'll actually, it's going to relate to a video I made, to, uh, I made a few days ago, but they posted mm-hmm. it today. And it's just, it's, I'm not going to curse because the video I curse because when I'm passionate. <laughs> but it's not, it's not easy. Um, for anyone, I wouldn't say that to myself because I never thought, thought it was easy. To myself, I'd say um, test, test, test. But when you find something that works, double down on it like crazy and save your money. Save yeah. your money for a rainy day. Mm. Um, but now for most entrepreneurs that are starting out and that are in my position, they don't care about saving money because they want to make it first. Mm. I'll tell you one thing. It is not easy. It's just anyone that says entrepreneurship is easy or business is easy because they want to sell you a program. Either they were lucky and luck happens. People win the lottery Doesn't or last. they're just lying or they forgot. Mm. They forgot how hard it is or they're just lying to you to sell you their program. Business is really difficult, John. Mm. And I've, I've bootstrapped four businesses and now I think it's four now. Yeah, four businesses to, to seven figures. Six or seven, four or three or four, sorry. So I'm up to my fourth or fifth. I've done it again and again and again. Bootstrapped to the millions. And I'll keep doing it because I like bootstrapping. And I'll tell you, having done it many times, not many people can say this. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying this because I've done it many times. I can easily brag that it's easy and I know how to do it and I've got the formula. I don't. It's always going to be difficult. Mm. If Elon Musk, who's a million times smarter than me, if mm. he struggles back in 08, mm. um, you will struggle a lot more. So it is going to be tough. It's about, it sounds cliche, but it is about persevering and making sure you do the right thing. You focus on the right thing. Put your efforts on that pebble that hits. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, you know, like most times it'll always cost twice as much and take twice as long. So <laughs> always patience, patience is underrated. You have to be patient. It takes time. If you're young and watching this, mm. you got what? Time is the most important asset. When you have time, you can fail. Mm. I, I, I used to look at failure so differently back then. I'm like, oh, it failed. I don't care. Now I've got so many people that rely on me. I've, I've got yes. less years than I had 10 years ago. So 
Yeah, it's hard because at the end of the day, as you say, like when you start up business and you fail, I think it's a good time to learn how to fail better because at the end of the day, you can move on, fail fast and move on. But when you when you got hungry mouths to feed and your people rely on you, that, that becomes impact. And you've got responsibilities, you've got a family, you've got people that rely on it. And it's just, it's not as, it's not, who cares about a 25 year old person that went bankrupt? Yeah. it's very different when you say yeah, I'm 55 I just went bankrupt and 10,000 people are affected by it because of that you know so exactly I think, I've, got my, I've got my family to feed as well so yeah mm, absolutely exactly cool well thanks so much Murray for coming on I think we had a great conversation about lots of things which is always what I like to do and we learned some key things and I think at the end of the day it's, it's, it's important to kind of to me it's always the big picture is very important um, because you've got to make sure that you don't I lose track of it. So I think, you know, keeping an eye on those numbers and keeping an eye on what happens is great. So if someone wants to get in touch with you, um, what's the best way to get in touch? Just go to the website. I'm not going to give you all these social media links. Just go marionorfolk.com. Norfolk is spent. Is spent. Mm -hmm. is spelt N for Nelly, A for Alpha, W for Whiskey, F for Fred, A for Alpha, L for Larry. So marionorfolk.com. Cool. You'll see all fun stuff there. No, all right. So I look forward to, and I look forward to following what happens and maybe we'll talk again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, John. You've just been listening to another great Evolvepreneur podcast interview. We hope you enjoyed it. Please visit evolvepreneur.biz today to find out more about our online community and how you can take part.